Hallelujah. Stand with me if you would. We're going to go to the Word of the Lord. My text this morning is from Hebrews 10, beginning with verse 19. Praise God. Sister Rome, it's always thrilled to see you here. We're so happy you're here. I asked her yesterday at the wedding if she was having fun. And she said she's having lots of fun. And we're glad for that. Having therefore, brethren, this is Hebrews 10, verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. This is into the presence of God, where the Shekinah glory dwells. It, of course, is a reference to the old time under the law when the high priest would once a year, with the blood of the scapegoat, be allowed to enter past the veil into the holiest of holies or most holy place and there sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat and obtain mercy for God's people's sins for another year. But Paul says, or the writer of Hebrews says, that we have boldness that we can enter that holy place by the blood not of a scapegoat, but of Jesus. By a new and living way, which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts, not the mercy seat, but our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. I want to preach from this passage this morning on this theme. What do I do now? Anybody ever said that? Anybody ever been in a fix, in a jam, in a situation? And you tried everything and nothing works. And so finally in exasperation or despair or discouragement you kind of throw up your hands and say well what do I do now that's what I want to preach about thank you Lord for your word thank you for its power and truth touch us by it in Jesus name amen thank you you may be seated If you've ever been there, you know how frustrating it is to be at the end of your rope, at, 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 at the extent of your abilities beyond your understanding. You just don't know what to do. What do I do now? Well, all of us, I guess, have been there in our own personal lives. There's ever been a time when society itself is in just such a jam. When leadership, politicians, social leaders 
throw up their hands with the same exasperated question that's certainly our time. It looks like nobody knows what to do now. When I look around our world and its heartbreak and the sin and the discouragement and the, and the pain that is on every hand, when I see the fear reflected in the eyes of people that I meet every day, I realize that nobody knows what to do now. I guess when you live in our times and you deal with the complexities of life like we deal with them, you come to appreciate even more that, that short passage full of meaning describing the children of Issachar, which were men, it says, that had understanding of their times to know what Israel ought to do. We've ever needed men like these men, women like these, then this is that time. I want you to notice these fellas, these people had an understanding. And their understanding was of their times, their position, their place in the course of history. Now I believe this meant that they had an understanding, a comprehension of the real issues that face their day. Not the changing transistory social and political issues that are here today and gone tomorrow. It's always amazing to me the people who feel that they have an understanding of political issues and that is the important understanding. It's not. Because the issues that fill our newspapers today will be gone and forgotten tomorrow. Those things that seem so important Everybody's talking about them. Everybody's thinking about them. Those things have a way of being so important now and so unimportant in just a little while. Politicians understand this well. That's why when there's a real hot issue that they don't want to do anything about, they call a press conference and with great fanfare and with awesome leadership display, they announce that they have introduced a bill in Congress that will take care of this most important issue. Of course, two years later, when that bill has finally made its way through all of the committees and all of the, uh, all of the efforts and all of the considerations, by that time it's not really so important. And so they can, they can just drop it off in file 13. Why? We're seeing that with the flag burning amendment right now. It was what? A year and a half or two years ago? that flag burning was the burning issue. But now it hardly raises an eyebrow because they have effectively deflected it by allowing it to follow all of the important issues that are based on the here and the now. But these people had more than an understanding of the real issues that seemed only important in their day. They had a glimpse of the wider horizon. They understood that the issues of life that matter are not those things that fill the headlines. They're not those things that are the topic of conversation at the water cooler or at the break table. But they understood that the things that mattered were those issues that affected not only today, but also eternity. The things that matter not in the life of changing transistory political concern, but the things that affect the souls of men. 
the things that make the difference of whether we're in heaven or whether we're in hell. They had an understanding of their times. But more importantly, they knew what to do about it. They understood their days, but they understood and had a glimpse and a concept of what they ought to be doing. I thank God that we can be like these children of Issachar. We can have not only an understanding of the strangeness of our days, not only an understanding of the danger of our days, of the deception of sin and compromise and all of the things that are happening around us, but that we can know what to do in times like this. What do I do now? I tell you what we do. In my passage of text that I read this morning, there are three things that are given us that we need to do. Not just think about, not just consider, not for me just to get up here and preach about, but three things that we need to get busy doing in our day. And if we do them, we will not just affect the changing concepts and issues of today. But we will affect eternity. We will affect the lives of men forever. I dare say that 20 people gathering on the streets of Moscow and praying around Red Square and praying within the walls of the Kremlin barely caught the attention of anyone around. I doubt that it made it to the headlines. I doubt that Mr. Yeltsin was made aware that there's 20 people praying on the cobbles of Red Square. I doubt that. But let me tell you something. That's not what's important. Those changing ideas and concepts that are outlined in the offices of the president of Russia aren't important. But what happened in Red Square when 20 Holy Ghost filled people began to pray and seek God, they reached beyond the headlines and they touched eternity and God will respond to the things that really matter. I'm not preaching this morning about marching, about placards. I'm not preaching about writing your congressman. Hey, I'm not against those things. They're all right. But let me tell you, they will not affect the eternal values uh, that matter. What matters is praying uh, and fasting and worshiping. I believe what's happening in New Life this morning is more important than what happened in the halls of Congress yesterday. Uh, because that's for here and now. But what we're doing is forever. And forever. And forever. We've got to have an understanding of our times. We've got to understand that we are in the last days. Uh, that if we're going to have revival, we've got to have it now. If we're going to commit, we've got to commit now. If we're going to change ourselves and by so doing affect our world, we've got to get busy. We don't have another 20 years. Uh, we don't have another decade. Uh, we've got to do it now. We've got to have an understanding do now not tomorrow now the time demands our effort now the times demand our best now so what do we do if the times are such that we must do something let's be sure since we have not another chance that we do the right thing so what are the things that we ought to do now. Well, the first one is listed there in the very beginning. After describing the ability, the opportunity that we have to enter the holy place, the writer of Hebrews says, then let us draw near. What good is an open door 
if no one walks through it? What good is a clear path if no one ever takes it? What good is a holy place where the mercy seat waits with the blood of Christ beside it in a bowl? What good is it if none ever boldly enters? And so the first thing we ought to do now is draw near unto God. It is time not to grow cold in our commitment. It's time now to draw nearer to God. I want to speak for a moment to our young people. I thank God for the kids at New Life. We've got one of the finest groups of young people that I know of anywhere. And I don't say that lightly. We have kids that love God and they, they love God's cause. We have kids that will commit themselves. I've seen them. Recently, uh, one of our young ladies uh, gave, was asked to give a report at school. And her report was on revival, I believe, in El Salvador. And that report was given before all of her classmates and the teacher. And there she stood. She told me later when it was over that she really got to feeling something as she was giving that report. That she just afterward kind of just went on and on with her excitement and her witnessing of what God was doing. I thank God for young people that aren't ashamed to take a stand in school, on the job, wherever they are, for the things and the cause of God. But I want to tell you kids, now's not the time for us to cool off in our commitment. Now is not the time for us to draw back and closer to the world. Now it's time to draw nigh, to draw near unto God. You ought to be shouting higher, clapping louder. You ought to be praying more, singing more beautiful, praying more devotedly, uh, worshiping with more enthusiasm than you ever have. Uh, this uh, is our hour. God has brought us to the kingdom for this time. Uh, and it is time to draw near unto God. I need more monitor, please. We live in a time when... People are hungry for something more than the same old routine. They're hungry for more than ritual. They're hungry for more than dead, dry church services. Church growth experts, non-Pentecostals, tell us there are some characteristics uh, that identify growing churches today. Now, I believe in church growth concepts. I do not make them a cornerstone of my religion. I believe you can gather a crowd and not have a church. But let me tell you what is the hallmark today, even among non-Pentecostals, for growing churches. They are churches, number one, with great music programs. Not dead, dry, yesterday's music, but music that lifts the heart and excites the soul. Music that is sung with enthusiasm and with skill. Number two, it is passionate worship. It's not people sitting there and calmly listening to what's happening, but churches that are appealing to our day are churches that are on their feet with their hands in the air, clapping and praising and worshiping God. Don't tell me it turns people away. The statistics prove it's just opposite. People are hungry for worshiping, praising churches. And the third thing is preaching. Preaching that's not wishy-washy. Preaching that identifies with people in their struggles and in their problems. Thank God we're ahead of the game. We've got great music. We've got worship. And I'm doing my best to preach the best I know how. Because our world is hungry. It is not time to back up. It is time to draw near. You have the greatest opportunity that you've ever had to praise, to worship, to win your 
friends to God. Let us draw near. There was a time when men could not approach God. When even Moses, when he just asked to see the glory of God, was reminded, you cannot see my face and live. There was always a barrier. Only the high priest, only once a year, only he could stay for a moment of time, long enough to do the oblation, to sprinkle the blood, and then quickly retreated from the Shekinah glory. There was a time when folks like you and me, people like us, had no hope of ever drawing nigh unto God. We might could stand in the court of Gentiles. If we were born right, we might could enter into the, the proper of the place of worship. But no hope for the place where God dwelt. No hope of ever seeing His face, feeling His presence, hearing His voice. Never. It would never happen. But that day is gone. God has ripped aside the veil. God has invited us. Draw near. Come with boldness to the throne of grace. Now we may draw near. We have been invited. This has been God's constant invitation. May respond as we choose. You need not draw near unto God. In this confusing age, you can be drawn aside, distracted by so many other things. You can let the world call to you and pull you out of your relationship with God. But you can, if you choose rather, draw close to Him, ever closer. You can become more like Him. You can walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. He has invited you. The door is open. The veil is torn. You may enter there if you choose. To not draw closer is to choose a life of misery and defeat. But to respond and draw closer to God is to open doors of victory and of power. Now when that ship was tossed by that storm and the disciples were toiling and rowing and making no progress, it was of course an allegory of life, of being in that place in life where we have no nothing else to do, no remedy for our circumstance. But at that moment, at the darkest moment, they lift their eyes and they see Jesus coming to them, walking on the water. Now folks, that's a miracle. But it's really, when you stop and think about it for a moment, it's not, it shouldn't be surprising to us. This was Jesus. This was He that created that lake. This was He that sparked the water into existence. This was the Creator of all. Certainly, since He made the laws of physics uh, under which we live, He could choose to suspend those laws. Uh, and for Jesus to come strolling across the heaving sea uh, is no surprise to any of us. But let me tell you what the surprise is. When Simon Peter called out and said, Bid me come to thee walking on the water, he wanted an invitation to do what none had ever done. Jesus said, Come. And I'll tell you an even greater surprise. He did. You ever prayed for something and when it happened it kind of shocked you? And maybe when you got it it wasn't the right color or the right size and you couldn't return it? I don't know how Simon Peter felt. I wonder if he kind of thought, you know, Jesus would say, well, yeah, it's really me, but you know, I'm the only one who can do this and you better stay in the boat and you're just a man and I don't expect you to... 
you know, you're just, I, I wouldn't ask you, and, and you know, there's laws, and you just can't, and that's too much to expect, and you might fail, and I, but he didn't say that. He said, come on. Come on, come nearer. Come closer to me. Leave the boat. Leave security. Leave your safety. And step on the waves. And come on. If you want to, the door's open. Now, he didn't demand it. He didn't demand that all the rest of them. They didn't have a mass exodus. Everybody, come on, guys. I'm not coming to your boat. You're going to have to come out. He didn't say that at all. But when one hungered to draw near, Jesus said, the door's open. The path is clear. Come on. The miracle was that Simon Peter climbed out of that boat. Condemn him all you want. But for one magical moment, for just a little while, he stepped out on the promises of God. And he walked on the fluid waves of the lake. Oh, God, I want to draw nigh. I don't want in this time to live my life at a distance. I don't want to be a professional Pentecostal. I don't want to just know the right words. I don't want to just know the right actions. I want to walk the waves. I want miracle power. I want to know you. I want to draw near in this hour. That's what we need to do now. We need to draw near. The waters are stirred at new life. Revival has come to new life. But it isn't just for folks to get the Holy Ghost. It isn't just for new people to be baptized. It isn't just for exciting services and the preacher to feel anointed. No, it's an opportunity. It's an open door for every one of us to draw near to God. This near walk with God is best defined and illustrated by the story of Abraham. And Lot, they finally came to a parting of the ways. Their flocks, herds were too large for them to dwell together any longer. And so Abraham called nephew Lot to him and said, Now, I'm going to let you choose. You decide what you want to do. And Lot decided. There is a perplexity involved in the personality of Lot. We are told in the New Testament that the sins of Sodom wrenched or perplexed or grieved his righteous soul. There was something about Lot that was right. There was a love of righteousness in Lot. He wanted God. He really did. He loved the righteousness of Uncle Abraham and the truth of the God that he spoke of. So part of him wanted rightness, wanted God. But part of him Listen to the other side of life. Some part of him wanted possessions, wanted money. He was not corrupt, but he wanted money. He was not spiritual. He was carnal, but he was not immoral. He lived among the lowest of the low. Immorality was a way of life in Sodom and Gomorrah. Perversion became so prevalent that it identifies those destroyed cities to this very day. But he could live among it and not partake of it. But his choices in life, his direction in life revealed there was something lacking. When he had the choice to draw near or draw back, it was toward the world that Lot pitched his tent. It looked logical to the carnal man. I'm not talking about sin. We don't know that Lot indulged in any sins. But he listened to his carnal mind. He made his life's decisions based on the carnal mind. He allowed logic to become his Lord. He let 
the things that he saw with his eyes become more real to him than the things he saw with his heart. And so Lot made the choice that the businessman of today would make. The man that is successful today would make. The career woman today would make. He went where the lights were bright and the money flowed and the future was. He pitched his tent toward Abraham, he had money. So he understood how little value there really is in it. And he valued the things of God. All of his life, Abraham is defined by his hunger for the presence of God. I think Abraham is, is, is captured by a snapshot, as if there was a photographer nearby with a 35 millimeter that caught Abraham in an unposed moment that revealed his nature. I think it's found in Genesis 18. And he lifted up his eyes and looked. And lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground and said, My Lord, if now I have found Favor in thy sight. Pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. What do we see about Abraham here? Here was three men. The Bible says they stood. They weren't going anywhere. They were standing still. And they were by him. They were in his neighborhood. They were close to him. But he wasn't satisfied. He didn't want them to just be nearby. He jumped up and he went running to where they were. Abraham always hungered to get a little closer. To get in a little nearer. To get near his voice and near his face. And he said, please don't leave me. Stay here. It wasn't a Sunday night experience. It was Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday Abraham hungered for the presence of God while Lot was moving ever nearer Sodom Abraham's desire for God always drew him nearer to God now as your pastor I want you to know I love you Sister Jones loves you we really do care about you I thank God for the for the burden and the love that he's placed on our hearts for you I'm telling you the hardest thing about pastoring. I'll tell you what it is. It isn't. We, we got in Friday night and Saturday morning a couple hours. Or was it the first hour there were nine calls or seven phone calls? Or something. But that's not the hardest thing about pastoring. I've stood by the bedside of saints in this church and watched them die. And held their hands. And that's hard. But that's not the hardest thing. I've preached some funerals. People that, that I loved here in this church. That's not the hardest. I've seen people here sick, miserably sick. And it was so hard to see them in pain. But that's not the hardest. I've counseled with people whose marriages are in trouble. And that's hard, but that's not the hardest. The hardest is watching people move away from God. Watching them helplessly make the wrong choices. And instead of like Abraham, hungering and moving nearer, ever nearer, watch them like Lot. I'm not talking about going out and juking and jiving. I'm not talking about at the picture shows and the ball games. I'm not talking about 
acting like the world. I'm talking about pitching their tent in the wrong direction. And knowing what the end will be, knowing what's going to happen. Spend time in prayer and seeking God and seeing no response. Seeing them determinedly move ever nearer, not God, but Sodom. But let me tell you the great joy of Pastor. It's not you're remembering us on holidays, and you're so kind to do that, and that is very special, but that's not the greatest joy. And it's not getting to preach to a wonderful crowd weekend after weekend. That's a great joy, but it's not the greatest. The greatest is watching someone move closer to God. Watching someone, usually without fanfare, usually without others even paying a lot of attention, but watching them head toward the presence of God. Watching them leap up from where they are and go running to the Lord and saying, don't leave me, you're what I want. You're what I'm hungry for. You see, I'm preaching about a desire. If you don't want more of God, you're going to sit right there and he'd actually move away from God. But if there's a hunger in your heart, you'll draw closer and nearer. Somebody said, can you get too spiritual? I've never met anybody that way. I've met some people off the deep end, yeah, but I've never met anybody that got too near God, that got too close to God. I've met people that drew nigh, closer and closer, and I've discovered there is no end. You can get as much of him as you want. You can get as close as you want to get. And it opens a door. I tell you why it's joyous. Because it opens a door. It doesn't mean it solves all their problems. It doesn't mean they always have sunshine. But it means it puts them in a position of power and influence with God. It means as Abraham. Now what if he had pitched his tent towards Sodom? Do you believe for one moment that the bargaining he did for the souls of a doomed city would have ever been possible. It was when he chose the wilderness. It was when he chose to draw close to God that the Bible says he bargained. Have mercy, he said. But won't the judge of all the earth do right? Would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? If there are not 50, if there's 50, if in all that vast city you can find 50, would you spare the city? Yes! Yeah. Said God, no hesitation. Yes, for 50, I will spare the city. Well, well, don't be angry with me. But what about 45? If you could find 45. And God said, yes, for 45 I would. Abraham's thinking, I'm on a roll. I'm near enough to God to know when he's pleased. I'm near enough to God to know when I'm touching his heart. How about 40? Yes. How about 30? Yes. How about 20? Yes. How about 10? Yes. But it's pointed out that Abraham's only flaw was he wasn't quite close to take one step further. And all he saved was his family. When did it begin? This positioning with God began in Genesis 18:23. And Abraham drew near and said, Will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? You want your prayers answered? You want God to hear you when you pray? You want God to bless your life, to touch you, to answer the needs of your life? I tell you, there's only one way. You draw near. And when you draw near, it positions you to reach out and touch God. Some people have to keep up with God's area code. Other people don't even have to use the phone. It's all up time to draw near. Somebody who's dependent on you getting close to God. Lot would have perished with the unrighteous. But Abraham was near enough to God.
save someone else. The second thing that we need to be doing right now is found in the 23rd verse of Hebrews 10. Let us hold fast. What is going on in our world? What kind of crazy world do we live in? I've never seen such confusion. Such mixed up ideas and attitudes. I've never seen a time where people could claim to know God and curse and lie. A time when people claim to know a holy and a pure God and indulge in sin of a nature that I couldn't even describe here publicly. I, I don't understand when once pillars of, of, of worship and devotion to God, churches now called mainline churches, that in ages or, or centuries past were, were bastions of holiness and righteousness and, and even the Spirit of God dwelt among them. And in their camp meetings, it is recorded that they ran the aisles and fell in the sawdust and, and filled the mourners' benches with sinners repenting and touching God. That they even, it is recorded, spoke with tongues as the blessings of God came on them. And today, they ordain homosexuals. And today, they say it's no sin but an alternate lifestyle. What a confusing time in which we live. And I see it infiltrating even the minds and hearts of those that walk in truth. If you don't walk close to God, listen to me, you are going to get confused. There is something about sin that I want to remind you of today, and that is sin is deceptive. It paints up it wears a mask. You don't see the worm-eaten face. You don't see the clammy uh, hand reaching out for you. All you see is the side that it wants you to know. And it will tell you it's all right. And you will grow confused. But we don't have to live that way anymore. That's just you PC standards. But we don't listen. That's baloney. You need to get the book out. Quit listening to everybody around you. And find out what God says. I tell you what we got, what we need to do now is we need to hold on. We need to hold fast to the profession of our faith without wavering. Without casting our eyes around and checking out how close to the edge we can live and how much of the world we can appropriate into our lives. It's time it's time to realize this is truth. This is right. This is God's Word. And we're going to stand on it. I don't know why I'm on this. This ain't my notes and I know I'm out of time, but I can't help it. We were, we were sitting in a restaurant while on vacation. Had lots of our friends. We ran into some, uh, some friends of ours and... Uh, a bunch of Pentecostal preachers and their wives. We were sitting in a restaurant. And there was another type of Pentecostal. Two preachers and their wives happened to be just right by us in a booth in the restaurant. And uh, I think they saw our wives. And it caused a conversation. And, and I, I'm sorry. I was listening. I was eavesdropping. I found it interesting. And I heard a statement that I've heard many times before by those who are letting go of their grip. They got to talking about makeup. 
What happened is the pastor's wife took her lipstick out of the purse and fixed up her lips. And I don't know if her husband said something, but she got upset. And she made this statement. Boy, it's quiet now, ain't it? She made this statement. She said, the world's going to hell. Our young people are immoral. Homosexuals in the pulpit. And you're going to get upset about a tube of lipstick? She said, get real. And I thought of that. I said, hey, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. In fact, we'll just take a step further. You know, we've got young married couples in our church that could qualify if they were my age as being yuppies. Young, upwardly, how's that go, mobile people? They work good jobs, and, you know. And you know what the big thing is among yuppies? It's wine drinking. Little red wine with steak, white wine with pasta. Pasta, is that right? And the world's going to hell! People are living immoral. Homosexuals in the pulpit. And you're going to preach about a bottle of wine? Get real. Well, how about lying? No, cheating on your income tax. I mean, the world's going to hell. People are living immoral. And you're going to preach about telling a little lie? Get real. Don't be fooled by the logic of a person losing their grip on truth. Jesus settled the issue once and for all. He condemned the Pharisees. He said, man, you're hung up. You're hung up on a bunch of standards. You tied right down to the tiniest bit of the mint and the anise and the cumin. And you neglect the weightier matters of the law. World's going to hell. People are not living right. Immorality everywhere. And you're going to get hung up on some little something that doesn't matter. Jesus settled it. He said, you ought to deal with the big things. But you better not leave the little things undone. Are you going to tell me that I have to pick and choose what I preach out of this book? That I've got to ignore some things because they may not be as important as other things. Paul said, I have never shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Now, I love you today, but I want you to know we've got to get a new grip. We've got to hold fast. There is revival and new life. God is bringing us new souls. It's a sign that we are healthy. We are growing. God is moving among us. But we are not going to give up. We are not going to give in. We are going to hold fast without wavering. Let me tell you something. God is in charge of this world. God knows what He's doing. And I don't want to hold on to some transistory changing concept or idea. I don't want to change my beliefs every six months or every five years. I don't want to change my belief every time Mr. Barna comes out with a new book. I want to get a grip on the old-fashioned gospel. The truth that has stood for 2,000 years. It's still one God. It's still repent. It's still baptism in Jesus' name. It's still Holy Ghost and tongue-talking. 
I want to hold on. And the third thing, oh my Lord, that we need to do now, and this is the last thing, is in verse 24. And let us consider one another to provoke. That's not hard for some people. I don't even have to preach about that to some people. They are born with an ability to provoke. Provoke means to stir up to an ex- in, into in, incitement or a paroxysm of emotion. I've counseled with some people that that would, des- that would describe how they were feeling. But this says we need to think. That's what consider means. We need to think about one another to provoke to love. It's easy to be thoughtless in our world. It's easy to be unconcerned. It's easy to think of ourselves instead of others. We're busy. We all are. You know, it's my business. It's our business, our church staff. Our people are our business. In fact, in my calendar, I put something in there to remind me every day when I turn the little electronic thing on, it pops up and there's a message. And the message is, it's people, stupid. Because I can get caught up in the machinery. I can get caught up in the organization of our church. I can get caught up in the staff work and the office work. I can even get caught up in sermon preparation and Bible study and forget. But we need one another now more than we ever have. What do I do now? Well, I draw near. I hold fast. And I stop. And I think about other people. Now, there's a twofold benefit here. If I'm thinking about you, that means I ain't thinking about me. And it would be very healthy if all of us thought a little less about ourselves. And a little more about others. Jesus exampled this for us. Fulfill ye my joy, Paul wrote to the Philippians, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem another better than himself. Look not every man on his own things, but every man on the things of others. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in the fashion as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus was motivated by love. And his love motivates us. He provokes us to love and good works. By his life, our lives are enriched. And of course, if we were more thoughtful and mindful, there would be more people saved. There would be more people here even today.
if we were motivated by love. What do I do now? I'm in trouble, Pastor. My marriage is on the rocks. My job's on the line. I'm, I'm, I'm depressed. I'm stressed out. What do I do now, Pastor? I've said the wrong things. I've hurt people I love. Can't pull them back. Can't get them again. What, what do I do now, Pastor? I'm confused about truth. About what I've heard all my life. What do I do now? For just the next 30 seconds, I'm turning this into a huge counseling session. You're all in my office. Seated around my conference table. And I'm going to answer your question. Now I know with 300 people here today or more. There's at least 300 different problems. That you don't know what to do about. But I've got the answer to every one of them. Draw near to God. Renew your grip on truth. And think about someone else. And their need. I promise you, I promise you today. Now, now, I've had a lot of people walk out of my office and I gave them good advice. Some took it, some didn't. And you have that same option today. You can walk out of here just as distant from God as you've ever been and stay perplexed and fearful and doubtful. And your grip on truth can be just as weak when you walk out of here as it was when you walked in and you can leave here Still as confused as when you came. And you can think, continue to think the church and God and the whole universe exist to take care of you. And still live a frustrated and unfulfilled life. Or you can do what you need to do now. And walk out of your different. You need to be careful about putting on the gospel and laying it aside. Some things are easier to take off than to put back on. Song of Solomon said, I've put off my coat and I can't get it back on. It's better. It's better to draw near. Hold on. Consider one another. Something beautiful in this service today. It has been from the very beginning. And we talk about it. We call it the spirit of the Lord. The presence of the Lord. Some just think it's emotionalism. But let me tell you what's really here today. It's the love of God that's in this place today. That is his spirit. That is his presence. For God is love. And let me tell you what happened when Simon stepped out of the boat and began to sink. He didn't get very close to Jesus. Before his faith failed and he started to go under. Maybe a step or two, three. Just enough that the Bible could qualify that he walked. But when he made an effort to get near love, Love reached out and met him.
threw its arms around him. And when Abraham failed to go far enough and stopped at ten and a city perished, God didn't have to, but love reached in and plucked out four. If you'll make an effort today, the love of God bathes these altars this morning. And if you'll make the few steps that will propel you to a place of prayer, God will come from heaven itself and will fling His arms around you this morning. And you can do what you need to do now. And you can do them all right here this morning. Let's stand together. Why don't we bow our heads and let's pray for just a moment here today. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Sometimes we don't know what to do. Sometimes we don't know where to turn. But oh God, help someone realize today a step toward you is always the right step. A renewed grasp of faith and truth is always the right hand hold. Help us turn toward you. I see him with outstretched hands today. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet. Come, whosoever will, let him come and take of the waters of life freely. Come in the spirit and the bride say, come. I go to prepare a place for you. Come. How many would like to step out this morning and make a step nearer God, closer Him? Draw nigh, draw near. Get in a renewed grip. Change your life view and consider others. Our altars are open today. Jesus says, come.